Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Live to see it, friends, and welcome to the World Transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, one that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At the World Transformed, we want to introduce you to what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-author, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. How are you, my friend? Man, I am doing great. We've got an amazing Wednesday show lined up tonight. We're going to talk about some amazing engineering stories. This is a fun set of stories to put together. I was outlining topics that we might talk about this week, and there was just this cluster of people doing really innovative, interesting technological things. You know, I love talking about this kind of stuff anyway, but there's an added benefit or an added, uh, just, just kind of a kicker with several of these is that they got a real kind of business side to them as well. So whenever you can, whenever you can combine amazing engineering with the possibility of radically changing the economy that's pretty huge or just radically making life better for people as is kind of the case with this first story an engineer creates green oasis by growing glaciers in the desert and uh, before i say anything else about the story you just got to follow the link and look at the picture am i right i mean yeah the picture says it all we can't adequately uh describe well you know we can try it's uh what ultimately it looks like um, when it's done is a uh, almost like a, a teepee of ice, okay? Right. So, it's solid straight through to the pipe that's in the middle of this teepee. So there's this pipe that uh, – so we're up – okay, let, let me back up, and, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm still in thunder, Phil, but uh, no, you're up in the it. mountains. Go, go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You're up in the mountains in the Himalayas. It's, it's a very arid place, but, you know uh, – at a certain time of the year, there's there's runoff from the glaciers as they begin to melt, and uh, and then you, what they can do is they they try to bank that as best they can. But you know, uh, to some extent, it's it, you know you it's, it's hard to container. save water in the desert. Let's there That's it right. is, you know, and it's, and they don't have water do. towers. Okay, they, they, you know, yeah. they're, they're they're relatively poor poor people up there, and uh, since they don't have water towers, how do they bank it? Right. Uh, well, this engineer has come up has 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 come up with a way, uh, and it involves something as simple as a pipe. And uh, you, you get this pipe, and it sprays water out, kind of a mist. Um, you know, when there's water to spray, um, he sprays it out, and of course it's 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 below freezing at the time that uh, this is happening. 
and um, and 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 it uh, it builds this uh, portable glacier and stuff. As, yeah, they describe it also as a pyramid of ice, which is a good description too. It, it, it stacks up higher glacier. and higher, and, yeah. and you get a pyramid of ice. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's a beautiful thing for people who need the water. And at and, the and, altitude and in that mm-hmm. climate, it turns out to be a great way to store water. A glacier is a fantastic way to store water, and rather than having it all evaporate and go away while you still need it, it they now have they can now store the water and keep it for the whole dry season, and then the I guess the rainier season comes along and and all is taken care of. But this is a this is just a beautiful, brilliant kind of stopgap measure to make sure they have water all the time. And it, it, it as you said, nothing more complicated than a pipe and taking advantage of the fact that water freezes. That's, that's really all it took yeah. to come up with this solution, but solves a huge problem for these folks. Right. And how, how tall uh, are these things? I, I think he, the, ones, the ones that they've done so far are about 40 feet tall. I could imagine them doing, doing, uh, these, doing them much taller than that. Um, go yeah, I, I, didn't, feet, I, I, didn't, I didn't read what the upper limit of that might be, but he's currently putting about 1.5 million liters of fresh water into these uh, pyramids, it says. So that's, and, yeah, and, and because it's so much ice, it, and, and because of the shape, the geometric shape, it tends to uh, uh, melt very slowly. Um, it, it takes a long time to melt, and, uh, and, 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 and throughout the dry season, it's, uh, it's producing water, and that's awesome, turning, turn, turning whole areas um, fertile and, uh, and lush, and that's, that's awesome. So, and I, just, I don't think we can emphasize enough. It looks totally cool, so follow the link and look at the picture. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic story. Okay, so let's, let's move on to the next one because we've got several of these that we want to get to, and we're going to run out of show time before we run out of show topics here. A Google-backed – oh, wait, sorry, not that one yet. We're going to do this one. This startup is disrupting the construction industry with 3D printing robots. Now, here we're hitting the, here we're hitting the business side of things because we've been talking about this sort of thing coming for, well, the whole time we've been doing this show. As long as we've been blogging, we've been saying, this is going to be a thing. Robots, 3D printing, put them together. What do you got? You got the ultimate solution for construction. And we've talked about it in exotic locations like on Mars or on the moon, that this, this would be a great way to build habitats and other planets or in environments yeah. that are hostile to humans. So you go out, you send, you send robots with 3D printers, and, and they can do things. But it also turns out, ultimately, it's going to be a highly scalable model here on Earth. And eventually, I think probably within our lifetimes, most construction is going to be done this way. We'll probably be done with 3D printers and, and, and robots taking up a or you know autonomous construction machines might be a more or less kooky sounding way of describing it but but that that will be kind of the core infrastructure for getting construction done and this company Kaza is trying to get on the ground floor they're they're uh, working on large scale developments in Dubai using 3D printing robots. We've read a little bit about this, I think, in the past, but they're, they're making a bigger push to it now. And they claim that it is the best way to do construction just in terms of uh, working sustainably, that you can cut labor and materials, you can cut costs and time, that this is the most efficient way to get something built. It's probably also got to be about the safest way 
right? Because you, you don't have people on construction sites that are at the kind of risk that, you know, this is typically one of the most hazardous lines of work you can be in, construction, and now suddenly you can get it done without that. Of course, the flip side of that is it also eliminates all those construction jobs, right? That's kind of the uh, right, right. The, the, the frightening part of that. But I don't know. I think when you look at this story, we're looking at a little slice of the future here. I think this is this is going to be the way construction increasingly occurs. We're going to just just as we've talked about the fact that we're going to be riding in autonomous vehicles in the future. I'm pretty sure that buildings are going to be built. Major infrastructure projects are going to be built increasingly by autonomous systems, and for a lot of the same reasons, really that that we're that we're going to go to autonomous cars. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just. It, it, it's uh, one of the uh, easy. I think it's an easier call about what the future will bring than most. Okay, it's just um, we we know that 3D printing works on a on a small scale, right? Um, and you know, a, a lot of us now have 3D printers in our homes to do small scale printing. Um, and uh, so, why in the world wouldn't this work? And if you could turn a, a house building job, let's say, um, into something that instead of requiring a army of a small army of, uh, of, of people to do, it could become a, a two or three person job uh, uh, together with this with this robot, right? I mean, you you might have one person that's feeding material into the robot, and uh, another person is kind of monitoring the overall progress or something, and pretty much the rest of it, uh, the robot's doing. And, uh, you know, and, and if, if you can reduce the labor force required, then, you know, what it would require as far as, uh, as, as expense to, to be a homeowner obviously goes down. Now, again, this is just, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword, as you said. You know, what if the potential homeowner was a construction worker, right? Right, right. That's the intersection of those, of those two <laughs> problems slash solutions, right? That's where, that's that's, right. That's where so. the, the, the two things meet. But I, but I think that's a good point. This, this is a technology that ultimately speaks to what we think about and talk about when we talk about post-scarcity. This is because you've got – uh, potentially self-reproducing systems. When the construction equipment can make more construction equipment, then then we're really going to we're, we're really going to be onto something. As it is, this is expensive equipment that belongs to a company, and they're going to save money and time and and not give people jobs. So it doesn't feel like something moving in a post-scarcity direction. But ultimately, that technology can move us in that direction. And I and I think it's a it, it's a great point that you make. If the cheaper house can belong to the construction worker who doesn't have a job anymore. That's that's kind of moving it in the right direction. If you if you if you connect those two dots together, then you're kind of heading in the right direction. Right. Right. All right. Okay. So how about this story? I, I know we got a lot to cover here. A Google-backed warehouse farm just raised twenty million dollars to build in cities in the U.S. Well, we've been talking about what do we call it? vertical farming, urban farming for yeah. for years now, and now we have a Google-backed warehouse farm company making its move. I, I wonder about this. Are we on the verge of seeing something huge happen with vertical farming, with, with urban farming? You know, because Google so. experiments with a lot of things. But this one feels, I don't know, it feels pretty interesting to me. Yeah, and part of what will make uh, urban farming work, I think, is computation. You know, I mean, you just... If, you know, if these farms are are 
smart farms. I think they work better. You know, so you can have uh, you can have things like um, you know your crops basically on uh, what amounts to almost a Ferris wheel to give each each uh, plant uh, an uh, you know an optimal amount of sunlight every day, and uh, you know you know optimal amount of water, optimal amount of nutrition. Um, you know the, these uh, these things can be done. Uh, by way of computer systems and Google, you know, that's that's their, you know, that's, you know, I think that's why Google is interested because what you know is a prerequisite te- technology to actually making this work is what they're good at. So um, I, I I like that it's it's a technology company that's jumping in. I think that's what's needed. I, I think so. I think so too because ultimately it's it's a technological solution. We know, agriculture yeah. really is a, a technological thing. We don't think of it necessarily in terms of technology, but people inside the business know that it is driven by technology and relies on it. And this is kind of a, a kind of a quantum technological leap for agriculture. This is kind of a paradigm shift for agriculture, if you will, moving, moving farming into a warehouse space, into a, into a large enclosed space. You can, you can use LED lights. You can use careful administration of water and nutrients. And ultimately, at less expense than you would out on open land with sunlight, you can produce food. You can produce it in greater quantities. You can produce it more reliably. And ultimately, you can, you can do it cheaper. And I think you're exactly right, Stephen. This is another good example. We talk about 3D printing, which turns manufacturing, and as we saw in the previous story, even construction into a data technology. Vertical farming, urban farming, moves agriculture in the direction of making it a data technology. It, it, right. it, makes, it makes the data component of agriculture the important uh, the, the important part of the equation google sees and, and that think also of the environment uh it's environmentally uh fantastic for a number of reasons one of which uh, you're indoors and therefore you're not having to use pesticides herbicides that kind of thing um and uh you know, you know so you're not you're not dealing with that, those problems and uh you're also producing the food in the case of urban farming uh, you're producing the food where the people are, and uh, and and so you you know you you don't have uh, transportation, uh, uh, you know you don't have to truck these things, you truck the food all over the countryside, you know burning fossil fuels and everything else, and so you that's right. You take a you, lot of the packing and all of the shipping expense out of the out of the equation, yeah. almost, almost, except the last mile, the last ten miles of the shipping expense out of the equation, yeah. and that's huge. Well, I I just I just see uh, you know. Uh, you know these future vertical farms, uh, like in skyscrapers type buildings, in the bottom two or three floors of the of this building is going to be a supermarket. You know, right. I mean, uh, and uh, that's uh, you just uh, you know pretty much the transportation of the food will be uh, people taking it from the supermarket to their house or their uh, apartment or whatever. So it's uh, it's it's just a uh, it's it's a great idea, but it's it's going to require a lot of. Uh, a lot of computation, and uh, so yeah, it needs to be somebody like Google to really jump in because right, we just are not there yet. Um, and uh, but uh, the potential seems seems right there. You know, I anticipate a pushback on this one. This, like the self-driving car, this seems to be something that I think a lot of people are going to look at this and say, "Oh, that's not right. That that's going against." 
how things ought to be. You're you're destroying the farm. You're, you're a terrible person because you want to you want to do away with farming, right? You know, I, I think I think those kinds of arguments are almost certain to ensue oh, as yeah. this becomes popular. And and there is a downside in terms of you know there is a whole lifestyle and a whole tradition around traditional outdoor farming that sooner or later I guess would pretty much end, right? Uh, that's it's, long it's term. Pretty much ended, it's, it's pretty much gone already, Phil. I mean, uh, almost all of what we eat is not, you know, from, you know, old McDonald, you know, uh, right. and, his, and his family-owned farm. Very little of the food that you and I and, and, and most of the, our countrymen here in the United States eat come, come from the, those sort of situations. Unless you do all your shopping at uh, a farmer's market, that's just not happening. Right. You know, what you, what you get pick up in the supermarket or come, uh, come from corporate farms already. And if these corporate farms take the, uh, uh, go the uh, urban farm route, the, uh, the ver- urban vertical farm route, then they're corporate farms that are being more uh, ecologically conscious, and that's a good thing and, uh, not, and, and not a bad thing at all. So um, while I, I fully expect to hear the arguments you're talking about, I, I think that uh, – Ultimately, they are, you know, I, I think that most people will not uh, will not pay that much mind, and ultimately they're going to buy their food where it's convenient and uh, and where it's cheaper because there's not any transportation costs. That that and, is uh, typically what people do anyway. Yeah, and I think organic, that's true. right? I mean, it's organic too. I, I think you know, so. the objections to this are, are a lesser version of the objections that we'll are hearing and will hear about uh, that meat, for example, right? right? Another big right. paradigm shift that people are going to have to go through, but Again, when when the meat's available that way, and as the price begins to go down, and the quality of it's established, the problem takes care of itself, right? Economics right. actually can can solve an awful lot of these problems. I think that's a I think that's an excellent point. Okay, we got to move on. We got two more stories we want to hit. Both of them. Revolutionary solar paint creates endless energy from water vapor. Now, ha- I, this was on inhabitat.com, and I only saw it there. I haven't Googled around to make sure that this is real, but if this is real, this is pretty awesome. They're, they're talking about uh, a university in Australia. They put together a solar paint that they say can produce endless amounts of clean energy. It draws moisture from the air and splits it into oxygen and hydrogen, which you can then capture the hydrogen as a, as a fuel source. Now, why or how this would be better than just taking the you know, using photovoltaics and making electricity straight out of the sunlight, I'm not sure. But it, it, it's certainly an interesting model that they've that they've come up with, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I buy it, Phil. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna <laughs> yeah. Have to, well, uh, again, I, I didn't check it everywhere. So. Or yeah. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to look into this. But yeah, I mean, obviously uh, H2O. I mean, uh, our water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, traditionally, it's been um, cost prohibitive to uh, to, to uh, get the hi- get to hydrogen that way as a fuel, right? Because it takes more energy to split the water uh, molecule into oxygen and hydrogen than the you know than the value of the hydrogen uh, to you. And of course, you know we, but we still do elect electrolysis for things like that in places that you need the hydrogen and it's you don't care about the expense as much um and you know and and so we've but you know there are things that uh make us believe that it can be done better Uh, for example we know that in um uh, photosynthesis plants do it 
Right. And, uh, and so if plants can do it and they can do it better than we, we can, uh, then, uh, then maybe there's ways that we can learn to do it better. So is, is something like that happening in this paint? I don't know. Uh, I've got a I've got to read up on this and see if this is something that uh, is actually. Yeah, happening, so. assuming it's real for a moment, because yeah. we didn't we, we we didn't check yeah. it out. And disclaimers apply because it it sounds a little too good to be true. But assuming it's real for a moment, one of the commenters on the site at Habitat wrote, "So you paint your wall, but how do you capture the hydrogen and then compress it?" And that was kind of what I was wondering too. It's entirely possible that they may have a breakthrough here that would allow you to do that, but that by the time you go to all the trouble of capturing the hydrogen, compressing it, and doing something with it, you're not at a net energy gain, right? That some, that, yeah. that other energy has to be pumped into the system in order to complete that whole process and to make it, to make it viable, which from the standpoint of what's being promised, it, it's then not viable, right? The fact that you've split those hydrogen atoms off is interesting, but if you can't if you can't get them for less energy than they can provide, no deal, right? There's, right, right. Uh, there's no advantage to, uh, to to doing this that I can think of. So, uh, big if that that it even works at all. If it does work, it, it seems like there's there's another big hurdle to overcome, which is actually making it practical. But right. you know, if if they can, the, the, this would be pretty cool. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some research, and I will I will let you know, Phil, uh, what I learn in the next week or two on this, and uh, and uh, let's report back to each other on this. So, see if uh, see what's actually happening here, because this, like you say, uh, could be a huge breakthrough. Um, maybe maybe the beginning of uh, of a string of breakthroughs that's needed to make this work, but uh, still, it's very interesting. Okay, uh, the la- last one we got tonight: a uh, graphene-based computer would be. A thousand times faster than silicon. Use one hundredth of the power. Um, <laughs> so here you go. Yeah. I think, along with our weekly cures to cancer, we can we can do a weekly a new weekly feature called Moore's Law is not dead. Don't worry about Moore's Law. Something to to that effect, right? Be, be, <laughs> because either we either we see stories that directly refute the concerns about Moore's law, or we see these interesting new computer paradigms that are being posited or being experimented on or being tried out. And here's an awesome one, building a transistor out of graphene uh, rather than silicon. And they're using what they call spintronics, which is giving you these tiny little computers that work much faster than a silicon-based computer. They can work faster because they're smaller. This is one of the things that is discussed in Engines of Creation, K.R. Drexler's original book about nanotechnology, is the, you know, the smaller you get, the faster you can go. This is just it's, it's the beauty of, you know, we tend to think everything down at the microscopic level, it's all kind of the same size, but it's not true. And the, the, the smaller you get, the faster you're able to, the, the faster you're able to process data. So here this thing would work a thousand times faster than a silicon chip and would take only one one hundredth of the power. Well, that that feels like if if they could really make that happen, that gives us some additional breathing room for Moore's law, at least, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, um, well, you know, it, Moore's law has always been just about silicon. So I guess we could say that you know Moore's law Moore's law is dead. Long live you know exponential <laughs> growth of computation because right. the, this would be the next paradigm. But it's, uh, 
yeah, yeah, like you say, we 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 are constantly running into these stories that uh, are you know one one way or another we're gonna we're gonna figure out ways to keep the keep this ball rolling. It seems there's uh, and 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 the thing is we have multiple options and we're, we'll probably go with the best one, hopefully, right? And uh, we you think about something like think about how small and lightweight and wonderful and amazing and powerful our smartphones are. Yeah. Right. Now let's start powering with something a thousand times faster, right? That it takes a hundred one one hundredth of the energy, right? I mean, that's a game so changer. If, if you're, yeah, if it takes one one hundredth of the energy, Phil, and my my smartphone battery can power a, a my phone for, you know, uh, conservatively uh, fifteen sixteen hours of constant use, right? Uh, well, right. Maybe not constant use, but anyway, before it needs to be recharged. Um, wouldn't it be awesome if you know once a month you got to charge your cell phone and it's a thousand times more powerful? Um, yeah, that would be. Yeah, yeah and that's what. Uh, that's what and I don't even know what your cell phone would be, right? It would it would be smaller than your watch, right? It would be it would just be this this, this, this little uh, it's in, it's in you carry clothes, around with you, right? Clo- yeah, it's in your clothing. Right. Yeah, something on your keychain or something like that, and it's a thousand times more powerful than your phone. Uh, the truth is, that's probably where that technology is headed anyway. I've been I've been reading things yeah. about you know the the end of the smartphone, what's coming next after the smartphone. The technology is heading there anyway. This is going to be one of the potentially this is one of the technologies that enables it. And it's no coincidence that this story comes off Kurzweil AI. Uh, obviously, Ray Kurzweil has been telling us for years that Moore's Law will continue, that new paradigms are going to come along, that computing is going to continue to be faster, be more efficient, uh, take up less space. Basically, it's just the ephemeralization of data processing, which has been going on for the past 50 years, and looks like there's no, there's no end in sight. In spite, of what, uh, in spite of what you may have heard on other podcasts or have read uh, <laughs> elsewhere, <laughs> elsewhere on the Internet, folks, um, there, there are just there are just too many good ways to keep this ball rolling for it for it not to happen. And and swinging it back to what I was saying at the beginning of the show, the financial incentives are there. This is you know you know what drives our economy right now? Smartphone features, right? Apps and smartphone capabilities. So the folks who make the smartphones are constantly, and, and, and computers to a lesser extent, but the cutting edge is really going to be on the phones these days. So you want to be able to make a phone that's lighter, that lasts longer, that takes better pictures, that stores more data, and as the competitors catch up a little bit, you have to push a little ahead. And that competition, that desire to keep producing a technology that's going to enable a salesperson to, to close a sale because the, the product you're making is a little bit better, that alone will keep pushing us towards these technologies and get one or two of them or who knows, four or five of them working in our favor so that we can realize this awesome future that, uh, that we've been talking about here. Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait. Fun stuff. Okay, well, there it is. There's, we actually got through it, Stephen. I, I'm yeah, impressed. Yeah. We, talked, we talked about five amazing engineering possibilities, several of them that I think have some economic impacts that we'll probably want to explore more in the future, but we're not going to be talking about that on Friday. We've got some good news stories and some fun science stories that we're going to be looking at as well as other geeks. So uh, it's great talking with you tonight, Stephen. I look forward to being with you all 
on our next World Transformed. And until next time, live to see it. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.